Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Footnoting History. I'm Lucy, and today I'll be discussing Mary Buckland and the role she played in the development of new sciences and the study of old rocks at the turn of the 19th century. Mary Buckland was born Mary Moreland in 1797, the daughter of a solicitor in northern England. Sadly, Mary's mother died when she was very young, but her father appears to have been an attentive parent, encouraging her interest in geology. Among his other projects, he managed coal mines in the Forest of Dean, which would have provided good territory for lessons. Mr. Moreland arranged for Mary to spend much of her childhood with family friends, and may have chosen the household of Sir Charles Pegg, Regius Professor of Anatomy at Oxford, in part because Mary had already evinced an interest in scientific subjects. Certainly Mary's enthusiasms developed further with the encouragement of Sir Charles, who lectured in mineralogy and geology, though these were not yet integrated into the university curriculum as degree subjects. Mary herself received formal education at Southampton, but her informal education and her own studies were of far greater importance to the cultivation of her interests and skills. By her early twenties, Mary was already active as a collector of fossils and known as a skilled scientific illustrator. But what did this mean in the context of early geological studies? For many non-specialists today, geology may seem to be a far from a thrilling science. Incidentally, I myself was only disabused of this notion when using geology to fulfill a university requirement for science education, and found myself pleasantly surprised by its fascinations. But to return to the matter at hand, the study of geology is, at its most basic and at its most stunningly complex, the study of the history of the earth itself, and in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, it was a discipline still in its own infancy and already the subject of hot debate. Debates over what science itself ought to be, as a profession and as a discipline, were still ongoing. And in the case of geology, its path to academic legitimacy was complicated by the question of how the evidence of fossils and geologic strata corroborated or contradicted biblical narratives of creation and the deluge. This is not to say that theologians, clerics, and philosophers who made up a significant number of university faculty were necessarily hostile towards the new discipline. Historians have demonstrated that lecture series on geology held at Oxford in the late 1810s were extremely well attended by senior professors as well as interested students. However, like many other areas of study, including history, which we think of today as integral parts of the university, geology grew up gradually out of the impassioned pursuits of amateur enthusiasts. Early geologists were usually professionally employed in other capacities, like Sir Charles Pegg as professor of anatomy. Pegg was an early advocate for geology, both teaching it at Oxford and arguing for its importance, and on his death in 1822, he bequeathed to Mary his scientific apparatus, described in his will as, quote, mineral cabinets and all the minerals and fossils contained in them at the time of my decease, and all my books of natural history and comparative anatomy as a mark of my esteem and regard for her, unquote. By this time, Mary was already actively collecting fossils and contributing drawings, not only to the works of Oxford scholars of geology, but participating in international scientific networks. One of her chief contacts, for whose works she drew, was the fabulously named Georges-Léopold Chrétien-Frédéric d'Agobert Cuvier, 
who played a major role in establishing the field of paleontology, making some of the first important studies of fossils and reconstructing skeletons of extinct animals found in rocks quarried near Paris. Not only Mary's skill in observation and drawing was known and valued, but so was her work as an independent geological researcher. In 1819, William Buckland, who would later become famous for identifying the first dinosaur, mentioned his extensive obligations to her discoveries in his work Vindicae Geologica. It was not until much later that the two geologists would marry, but according to one of their daughters, the two had a memorable and memorably academic meet-cute at some point before William's footnote to Mary's work in 1819. Everyone with family lore of their own will understand that some historians have treated the anecdote of William and Mary's first encounter with caution, but the story was published during Mary's lifetime, so we know at least that it's a version she let stand. As the story goes, William was travelling through Dorsetshire by coach, and reading, quote, a new and weighty book of Cuvier's, which he had just received from the publisher. Sarah Gordon, the couple's daughter, does not record how many other passengers were in the coach. At the very least, Mary was there, and she was travelling with multiple books, a woman after my own heart. Amongst them was a copy of Cuvier's tome which the author himself had sent her. This unusual circumstance, I, for instance, have never encountered anyone else reading an academic monograph on public transportation, led them into conversation. This became increasingly intense and increasingly scientifically specialized. Unfortunately, no more detail is given in reporting what the two discussed, but they did so with a verve and expertise that eventually enabled recognition. As Sarah reports, the drift of their conversation was so peculiar that Dr. Buckland at last exclaimed, You must be Miss Morland, to whom I am about to deliver a letter of introduction. I love this story, and the detail of the letter of introduction is one of my favourites in it. By this stage in William Buckland's career, he had been a lecturer at Oxford for nearly ten years, and from 1816 he had been travelling extensively in continental Europe, reporting phenomena previously unknown in Britain. What the letter of introduction tells us is that this professionally established and publicly respected academic was interested enough by Mary's work to arrange for a friend to establish his credentials to her. It would appear that, although William and Mary's romantic partnership took some time to develop, their intellectual partnership was established almost from the first. All together now. Aww. Okay, I got that out of my system. Moving on. William was doing paleontological work on giant bones at the time, bones he would eventually identify as belonging to a dinosaur that he called Megalosaurus. The bones, found in Oxfordshire, had been known since the 17th century, but they had been previously identified as belonging possibly to an elephant or possibly to a giant or giantess. Long story. But back to the Megalosaurus. Megalosaurus was the first dinosaur to be given a name, and from 1822, Mary had been sending Georges Cuvier drawings of speculative reconstructions of the creature. For me, it's intriguingly suggestive of her involvement, and perhaps collaboration, in some of William's most iconic research. William presented the Megalosaurus to a wider public for the first time in an 1824 Oxford lecture, and published his results the following year. Also in 1825, Mary and William married. It was a late marriage for both of them, as she was 28 and he was 41. After their wedding, William and Mary went on what Fernanda Castano has described as a fossil-fest honeymoon. The couple spent nearly a year travelling through Italy, France, and Germany, meeting many of their fellow geologists along the way, including Alexander von Humboldt, 
and, appropriately, Cuvier. William is on record as disapproving of women being publicly active in academic pursuits, alas, but he and Mary appear to have continued in a very harmonious partnership in research after their marriage. This is an inconsistency I find puzzling, but despite William's dogmatic statement, friends of the couple reported on their life as one that was fully and happily shared, shaped by their shared scientific passions. Mary provided illustrations for William's Reliquiae de Luvianae, a massive geological treatise, and Carolyn Fox described their household, perhaps wryly, as one in which dust and rubbish were held sacred to geology. The silhouette accompanying this podcast suggests that scientific paraphernalia invaded the public spaces of the Buckland's home to an extent that made the portrayal of the couple involved in research an iconic one, and that this research pervaded their private life to an extent that having a toddler playing with millennia-old snails would have been fairly normal. Scientists who came to visit the Bucklands spoke of visiting them both, not merely of William and his wife. And together, often accompanied by some of their nine children, the couple would show visitors over their impressive collection of fossils. The fossils were bequeathed by William as a foundational collection to what eventually became the Oxford Museum of Natural History. A relatively recent discovery was that it was Mary's handwriting on these original exhibits, indicating that she was involved in both their preparation and their cataloging. One of my favourite anecdotes of their partnership comes, like that of their first encounter, from the memoir of their daughter Sarah. William had, apparently, been very puzzled by a geological specimen he'd found with unidentified footprints in it. Finally, he decided to put an unlikely hypothesis to the test. In the middle of the night, he descended to the kitchen and set about recreating a soft limestone surface by mixing flour and water on the kitchen table, and then fetching a small tortoise. This tortoise, apparently, was just kept in their house somewhere. I know no further detail about its maintenance. It was at this point, between two and three in the morning, as Sarah reports, that Mary came down to the kitchen to see what was going on. If her first reaction was, why is the kitchen covered in flour? Or, what are you doing, William? Or even, what are you doing, William? It is two in the morning. This is not recorded. What is recorded is that William explained what he was trying to do, and they proceeded together with the experiment, placing the tortoise on the edge of the flower-covered table. Imagine their delight, Sarah writes, when it was discovered that the footprints of the tortoise corresponded to those found on the previously mysterious rock sample. In addition to participating in such experiments, Mary acted as a collaborator on William's published work. A letter from a friend, who may have read rough drafts, said that she added clarity and no little polish to these. While William acknowledged her help, though, his publishers didn't, so it's difficult to assess the scope of Mary's contributions. Moreover, Mary was actively engaged in teaching, and not just her and William's own children. At first, it seemed to me that this must have been a less than satisfactory arena for the exercise of her considerable gifts as a researcher. But Mary seems to have made of it a new opportunity. She invented new types of model globe to teach her young pupils about the phases of the moon, and, yes, about the history of the Earth. One of their sons, Francis Trevelyan, known, understandably, as Frank, went on to become a surgeon and respected zoologist in his own right. Mary herself, meanwhile, lived on into an unsensational old age, which we know very little about. Mary's history is made difficult both to unearth and to interpret by the fact that many early treatments of her life, and William's, with whose life hers was bound up, 
were written in the mid-nineteenth century, when the ideal role of a middle-class wife and mother was more firmly established as a domestic one than it had been during Mary's own lifetime a generation earlier. Thus, those wishing to praise Mary would have been likely to gloss over elements of her life that had become vaguely or not so vaguely suspect through unconventionality. There is also simply the fact that much of Mary's life remains unrecorded. After her marriage, she lived and worked much more privately than before, and her scientific activities are often referenced casually but nondescriptively within a circle of acquaintances for whom they were treated as common knowledge, not as a matter of historical record. But this common knowledge of matters like her showing scholarly visitors and small children alike around one of the best fossil collections of the period gives us tantalizing insight into an uncommon life. Mary's history allows us to glimpse the opportunities for an intelligent and passionate woman to work around the limitations of social convention to carve out a career on the cusp of a developing science at the beginning of the 19th century. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.